Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead, explores many biblical ideas, um, but none more powerfully than the scriptural importance of giving and receiving blessings. The novel is written in the form of a long letter from a dying father to his eight-year-old son. The father has served as a pastor of a small Iowa town for 50 years, and he wants to share his own personal history and philosophy with his son. One of the most delightful vignettes occurs near the beginning of the book. I included it in the newsletter this week. It begins as a comical story involving a bunch of church kids baptizing a litter of feral kittens. And yet the old pastor sees this incident as a window into a deeper theological truth. He writes, everyone has petted a cat, but to touch one like that with the pure intention of blessing it, it is a very different thing. It stays in the mind. For years, we would wonder what, from a cosmic standpoint, we had done to those cats when we baptized them. And it seems to me like a real question. There is a reality in blessing. It doesn't enhance sacredness, but it acknowledges it. And there is power in that. I have, I have felt it pass through me, so to speak. The sensation is one of really knowing a creature. I mean, really feeling its mysterious life, and yet, in your own mysterious life at the same time. I particularly love the line, there is a reality in blessing. It doesn't enhance sacredness, but it acknowledges it. We frequently offer blessings here at Shalom, as Shelley has told us. We sing our blessing song when people are moving or experiencing other life events or when we don't know what else we can do. Um, we offer formal blessings like we did this morning, or as happened uh, several weeks ago when we gave our fourth and sixth graders Bibles. And every week, we end our service with a benediction. And so this seems like a good practice to end our series Forging Faith, Finding Belief in Common Practices with. In some ways, offering Blessing is such a common thing, it is difficult to talk about. We do it instinctively when, we, when someone sneezes or when someone says goodbye. And for this reason, I love Marilyn Robinson's story of the kitten baptism, because I think this story gets at the heart of something about blessing. It's simplicity. I think those of us who have pets very frequently lay our hands upon their heads, look them in the eye and say words of blessing to them. You're a good boy. <laughs> I love you, little cat. Some of us follow our words with a kiss. And blessing is also something that comes very naturally with the dying pet. We lay our hands on them and we tell them very, very, very tenderly what their lives have meant to ours. In church, at times, I think we talk about blessing as a formal, reverent, maybe even a bit artificial kind of utterance. But I think that in truth, a real blessing is more akin to what we offer our animal companions. I think that blessings aren't fancier words 
or more religious-y words. Instead, they are more distilled words, more intentioned words, more direct words. It is relatively easy to offer a blessing to an animal. I think it is much harder to offer a blessing to people, except babies, who I think we unconsciously bless with kisses and by staring directly into their face, smiling at them with our whole being. I think this image of looking adoringly at a baby is what comes to my mind when I hear the standard priestly blessing. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you. It's easy to bless babies and pets, but once a child starts to speak, our relationship with them becomes freighted by words and maybe also history and all the ways we've been hurt by words and by history. Complexity, perhaps, that makes offering and receiving blessings a bit more difficult every day. It's harder to stroke our adult child's hair and look them right in the eye and say, you are my beloved child and I am pleased with you or to a dying parent, go in peace. Your life has meant so much to me. <laughs> Indeed, the novel of Gilead focuses on how it takes a lifetime for the narrator, John Ames Sr., to be able to honestly bless his godson and namesake. And is it not true, much of the strife between generations has to do with an unwillingness to give or to receive blessings. I am unwilling to give a blessing to my child's marriage. If I embrace my new grandchild with unmitigated joy, am I condoning the fact that they are not married? I don't know if my mom would have ever been proud of me. And for this reason, giving my blessing in our common idiom means something a lot like give my moral sanction to something. And so I think we think of blessings as something that we need to earn. I think one of the things that makes Robinson's novel so powerful is that it delves deeply into the scriptural narratives of blessings, noting again and again that in scripture, blessings are unmerited, like the one that Jacob procures for himself or that Abraham receives. Robinson very masterfully reads all of the stories of blessings offered and withheld or seemingly withheld through the lens of the story of the prodigal son. The story where the younger son who has said he wants nothing to do with his father, the story where the younger son who has demands his inheritance and leaves his father's home and only after losing all the money and ending up destitute returns not necessarily need, repentant, but needy to his father and his father exuberantly receives him with a banquet. Meanwhile, his older faithful brother toils continually, seemingly with no evident reward. Robinson asserts that this story tells you everything you need to know about God and blessing. God has a strange parental impulse to always choose the disreputable child, to favor the outcast and the lost. And this would be unbearable for all of us so-called good children if it wasn't the case as a story of the prodigal sons hammers home eloquently that we are all lost children. 
the younger son in his weakness and dissipation, and the older son in his pride and resentment. We are all wayward children and dearly and deeply loved just because, indiscriminately blessed. I remember when I first became convinced, not just intellectually, but emotionally and with every fiber of my being that women could be pastors. Before that point, I was willing to have intellectual debates about women in ministry with my guy friends who were studying at Calvin Theological Seminary. At that time, that denomination was on the fence about whether to ordain women. They had given women provisional capacity to be ministers, but they distinguished between exhorting, which women could do, and preaching, which women could not do. But more than anything, women weren't allowed in this interregnum time to lift their hands to bless. That was something that seemed beyond the pale and excluded them from weddings and communions and even offering the benediction at the end of a service. For some reason, it was this ridiculous distinction and prohibition that finally made me low-key lose it. Saying snarkily to these friends, yes, the last thing we would want is to have more people going around and blessing other people. What could be possibly more dangerous than indiscriminate blessing? I thought I was being seething and sarcastic, but as I saw the looks on their faces, I think I really hit a nerve. They did in fact, I think, think that indiscriminately blessing people could be dangerous. That was at the heart of their fear of marriage equality and women's ordination and social programs, which were too lenient with the undeserving poor or improvements to the criminal justice system that seemingly let criminals off too easily. If you really think about it, there is a lot of resentment and refusal to offer a blessing that drives our culture. In closing, this all makes me think of a great quote by Wendell Berry, where he writes, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. He is saying in short, all places are holy, but some places we don't treat as if they are holy. And surely we can say this about our attitude towards people. There are no non-sacred people, but we sometimes don't acknowledge each other's sacredness. And so in the news this week, we see a whole nation following the tragedy of a lost submersible in the North Atlantic with bated breath, yet very, very few following the story of a lost migrant ship in the Mediterranean Sea. This truth that some lives are seen as sacred and others is not seems very obvious. And so I think one of the things we practice each week at church when we say simple distilled words to each other like God bless you and keep you or go in peace and bring peace to the world or may God grant you a blessing is that one of the things that we practice in this act of blessing is seeing. We strengthen our capacity to see one another's sacredness. We 
strengthen our capacity to acknowledge one another's sacredness. We strengthen our capacity to name one another's sacredness. And so we potentially can become a little bit more indiscriminate and joyous as we offer blessing to the people we meet this week. 